this morning, and because it is still so new for us, I want to take a minute to locate us as to where we are in the narrative lectionary before we delve into our reading from the book of Hosea. Except uh, for last week and again in the upcoming weeks of Advent, all of our scripture readings are drawn from something called the narrative lectionary. The narrative lectionary is a four-year cycle of suggested scripture readings that begin on the second Sunday of September and run all the way through Pentecost, which next year will be on May 19th. The narrative lectionary pauses during the summer and then resumes the following September. In all four years of the narrative lectionary cycle, beginning on that second Sunday in September, running through the middle of Advent, the suggested scripture readings are all drawn from what we call the Old Testament. And because old can sometimes sound dismissive or derogatory, uh, some communities have adopted a practice of calling it the First Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures, even though those terms can be problematic for other reasons. But no matter what we call these first 39 books of the Older Testament, it too can be divided into either three or four sizable subdivisions. Our Jewish friends divide the Older Testament into three sections, the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. Well, we Protestants divide uh, the same uh, books into four subsections, the Torah, history, prophets, and writings. If you have our narrative lectionary bookmark, and you can certainly get one on the welcome table in the back, you will see that on the first five Sundays since we launched the narrative lectionary, all of our readings came uh, from that first section of the Bible, the, the Torah. And then after uh, that, for the last four Sundays, we have been in the history narratives. This week and next week, uh, we will be hearing from the prophets. And just to give you a preview, I'll let you know that during Advent, when we move away from the narrative lectionary, uh, we're going to do a sermon series called The First Songs of Christmas. And all of those songs come to us from the Gospel of Luke. One reason for using the narrative lectionary is so that we can get a better sense of the broad themes that run throughout the Scripture from beginning to end. And when we do this, we are less able to make some of the mistakes we do when we proof text and more able to see, as biblical scholar uh, Walter Brueggemann says, that the Bible is consistent and forceful in its main theological claim. The claim that the God who creates the world in love 
redeems the world in suffering will consummate the world in joyous well-being. Let me say that again. The Bible is forceful and consistent in its main theological claim. The claim that the God who creates the world in love and redeems the world in suffering will consummate the world in joyful well-being. So none of this left-behind nonsense. Well, this is the through line of the Bible. We often make the mistake of thinking that the God revealed in the Old Testament and the New Testament is somehow different. That the God of the Old Testament is a God of judgment and, and wrath. Well, the God of the New Testament is a God of grace and compassion. As we will see as we explore Hosea, this is not necessarily the case. Will you pray with me? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, I pray, and know my thoughts. See if there be some untoward way within me And lead me instead in the everlasting way. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I can't remember which college it was that we were visiting with one of our three children, but I do remember that it was a religiously affiliated institution and that our campus guide, a student, was quite excited to share about a class that he had enrolled in for the next semester called wrestling with the wrath of God. Now, I was quite intrigued by that course title, and and not for the first time I wished that I were a college student again. One of the most pervasive ideas, I would say pernicious ideas, in American Christianity is that Jesus' death on the cross appeased God's wrath by saving us from enduring the due punishment for our sin. And that the only way that we can avoid that due punishment is by accepting Jesus as our Lord and Savior. This perspective leans on an evangelistic sermon preached by an American revivalist by the name of Jonathan Edwards back in 1741. Perhaps you've heard of this sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. In a well-known part of the sermon, 
This is what Edwards proclaimed. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. God is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. Wow. (laughs) And I'm sure that you can hear sermons just like that in churches across the country this morning. But is that really God's view? That God loathes and abhors us? That we are abominable in God's sight? That, that, but for Jesus, God would just as soon cast us into hell. Well, if that's the case, and and follow this logic, that would mean that God sent Jesus to save us from God. The same God that Jesus so often referred to as Abba, which we would translate best as Papa. I resonate with uh, Brian Zond. Now, uh, Brian Zond is a preacher in the Midwest. He wrote a wonderful book called Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. The Scandalous Truth of the Very Good News. Now, Zond initially ascribed to Edwards' uh, type of thinking But then in this book, he writes, I understand we can use the Bible as our palette to paint a monstrous portrait of God. But when we're finished, if the image doesn't look like Jesus, we have got it wrong. It is a false and distorted portrait. As you listen to our reading this morning, the threshold moment, I think we would be hard-pressed to conclude that Hosea understood God as a wrathful monster. Though he predated Jesus by 750 years, Hosea depicts God in a way that looks like what we know of Jesus, And then how Jesus himself spoke to, for, and about God. A little background on Hosea, as we shared earlier. It is one of 12, uh, Hosea is one of 12 minor prophets whose books appear at the very end of the Older Testament. But that description, minor prophet, is not meant to diminish their significance. Rather, it's just a comment on the small size of their writings when compared against the so-called major prophets of Ezekiel 
and Isaiah and Jeremiah. And it's because of their small size that we so easily, when we're looking at them, just flip past them in the Bible. They're, they're sort of hard to find. <laughs> Though I would point out that Pastor Liz in our staff meeting this uh, week impressed us all by just reciting the books in order. I can't do that anymore. Hosea is memorable because in the first few verses of Hosea, God tells Hosea to marry a prostitute named Gomer. And Gomer proves to be unfaithful again and again. And yet, Hosea's love and commitment to her is steadfast. And this provides a a powerful metaphor as Hosea describes the relationship between God and Israel as akin to a faithful partner who is married to an adulterer. Just as Gomer runs around with other men, Israel sins with other gods, most notably the Baal. But in Hosea 11, the metaphor shifts, describing God as a dedicated, eternally loving parent, and Israel as a headstrong, recalcitrant, prodigal son. Hosea 11 is drenched with emotion, so much so that Hosea is uh, known as or referred to as the love prophet. Uh, And Hosea 11 is known as the love chapter. And and some go so far as to say that Hosea 11 is to the Old Testament what John 3.16 is to the New Testament. Though Israel's disobedience is absolutely clear in verse 2, This wayward behavior does not ultimately result in divine rage or rejection or retribution. While God is clearly exasperated, we overhear God taking part in some parental nostalgia, recalling the nurturing care that God has showered upon Ephraim, which is just another name for Israel. Verses 3 through 4 then describe five or six different actions that reveal God's unwavering love. We heard the new Revised Standard uh, Version translation of the text, but I'd like to read for you how this text is translated by our Jewish brothers and sisters in a publication that is often used in in synagogues. It's by the New Jewish Publication Society. I fell in love with Israel when he was a child, and I've called him my son ever since. Thus they were called, but they went their own way. They sacrificed to Baalim and offered carved images. 
but they've ignored my healing care. I drew them with human ties, with cords of love, but it seemed to them that, that I put a yoke upon their jaws, even though I was offering them food. Whichever translation, and though we often talk uh, about uh, God's strength and, and power and, and grandeur, what Hosea 11 reveals to us is that God has a soft spot, what we might even call an Achilles heel. Even as verses 5 through 7 reveal that God really, really wants to be a stern parent and, and, and demonstrate tough love, God can't help but relent. As verse 8 says, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. This passage is so tender that we might easily see it as an expression of maternal love. In the same way that Jesus is, expresses in yearning and, and lament in Matthew 23, 27, when, when Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills prophets and, and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. But you were not willing. Hosea reveals that God is wrestling with wrath and ultimately comes down on the side of unmerited mercy. I don't think we have to be parents to relate to God's anguish, but as verse 9 affirms, I am God and no mortal the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. I would invite you to remember that with apologies to Julia Howe, Ward Howe, who wrote the Battle Hymn of the Republic. <laughs> and, and thankfully, this is not a one-off in the Old Testament. It is certainly consistent with the God who has revealed to us in Jesus and that has, uh, has revealed to us that since the very beginning of creation, God doesn't want to be God without us. Because God is not a vindictive tyrant who would just as soon cut ties with us but rather an anguished parent whose heart aches when we are not who we've been created to be. Amen.